Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. In this episode, as you'll hear, we tried a little bit of a different format. We had a panel of millennials who shared their personal struggles and successes in holding on to their heritage. Together with Ele Betamar, we joined them at the Yemenite Heritage Center and Jewish Communities of Israel in Rehovot. Please let us know what you think of this style by sending us a message or writing in the comments. And now, for the episode. Good morning, everyone. We're here on behalf of Amutat Lebatamar and the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience to talk about reclaiming identities. My name is Shani Oshri. Uh, I live in Tel Aviv, originally from uh, Natania. Professionally, I'm an uh, opera singer and folk music singer. I'm the first of nine brothers. That's it. <laughs> and I'm happy to be here. Hello, my name is Leo. I'm 40 years old and married with two kids. I'm, uh, I'm originally from Natania also, and uh, I, live in, I live in Lod for the past 10 years, and I'm a social activist. Hi, my name is uh, Ovadia Sagi-Giar, and I was uh, born in a small settlement uh, 45 uh, minutes south of Tel Aviv. I, my profession is a silversmith. I'm Dalia Rusi. I grew up in the U.S., and I live now in Jerusalem with my husband, and I work with the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation today. My name is Naama, Naama Perl Sadok. I live in Kibbutz Tiratzvi. I'm married to Uriel and I have four kids. Uh, in my profession, I'm a musician, I'm a music composer. I write music to ensembles, to orchestras and diverse media. On my other hat, I'm a lecturer and a music teacher. And I'm very thrilled to be here today. And now to start the conversation, we're all uh, second or third generation in Israel. And uh, we'll go around asking, uh, where are you born? Where is your family from? Shani? Hi, I'm born in Israel. I am a third, third generation here. Um, I'm half Persian, half Yemeni. My mother is a Persian, my father is Yemeni. And I really like the, all the culture and all the food, of course, and the language and the music. I, I was born in Kiryat Ono. I'm a third generation from the Aliyah. And my grandparents are from... Tunisia and from Yemen. My mother's side is from Tunisia and my father's side is from Yemen. Uh, both of my parents was born in Morocco. My mother is from Casablanca and my father is from Aswera. And uh, my father did Aliyah in uh, 1956. He went to uh, Bechean. And my mother did Aliyah in 1967. And she uh, went to uh, Netanya. That's where my parents met. And uh, had me. How old were your parents when they came to Israel? My father was 15 and my mother was 10. So I was born and raised, as I said before, in a small settlement, um, 45 minutes south of Tel Aviv, called Bnei Re'em. And I was actually born here in Rehovot, in the, in the hospital. My grandfather and grandmother 
came from Yemen, uh, from the side of my mother. He came from uh, Raime, and from uh, the side of my father, they came from Dajje, which is uh, three hours uh, east to Sana'a. Um, I'm half Yemenite, half um, Ashkenazi. My father's side came, his parents came from Yemen. Um, his father came from Sana'a and his mother came from a village called Menache in 1949 with the Big Aliyah. Vadia, when you were young, uh, what kind of stories uh, did you hear from your parents? The stories that I grew up on, I carry a lot of emotion from, um, from my when my parents told was telling me uh, those stories and and those stories had a lot of a lot of influence on me one of those stories that had so much influence and and we can see the reflection of it today is the story of the uh, the lost child when my father born in the in Jerusalem he was born in Jerusalem in in Ein Karem uh, and, um, Hospital. The first story that I heard from him is that the doctor asked my grandfather to buy my father from here because he said that you have enough child. Another child is, is just too much. So what do you say? Maybe maybe you you I can buy your child. And so this is the first story about the first moment when my father uh, came to the world. And and this is only one of the the, the stories that I uh, grow on. And on this line, it's it's kept on the racist line. And eight years later. In our settlement, my father worked as a, uh, he cleaned the garden of some of the Holocaust survivors. And it was a hot day and my father worked hard with cleaning all the bad weeds. And so in one moment he asked from, my father asked from, from Holocaust survivor, he asked for a glass of water. And the guy approached him jar full of dirt and told him drink take it my father looked at him and, and looked at the jar and he refused he discussed from the jar and the guy said but you people like it just take it don't make a big sense don't make a big deal come on just drink it and my father left and there is no conclusion for those, those stories my father just finished those story with this you know with his thought and, and just live and you know, it was a moment of um, silence at home, at the home, and, and, and we tried to digest as a kid. But I can say clearly today how it's influenced on me, on my activism these days. All right, thank you, uh, Leo. I had a lot of uh, heard a lot of stories from my parents about the old country, about Morocco, also about tradition and culture and food and uh, family stories, and uh, it was always talked about in a very nostalgic way, in a very uh, positive way. I think life in Morocco was very difficult because it was a poor country and uh, the Jews uh, sometimes had persecuted against them. But still, the notion was that everything was, the water tastes better there and uh, the, the fruit was excellent and everything is, was wonderful. And it, it was because that my, my, mostly my father was, and also my mother, they had, 
such a huge difference between the the way that they felt in Morocco that they were and they welcomed and they felt felt a part and belonging and the way that they they felt a part of the of coming home to the Jewish state and didn't feel feel welcome and didn't feel like anybody is actually treating them with the right respect or the right attribute to their cultural knowledge so I think in general that's the story and the, that's the atmosphere that we had at home and the, Morocco was always present I mean the, we heard music from Morocco we my parents and I spoke Moroccan to each other and it was very very apparent and it was like a like a bubble in time I mean we lived in Israel I grew up in Israel but home was like an, an island still belonging to Morocco so I have a lot of story about Tehran from my grandma from Safta Sara she told me about a green village and such a beautiful nature and of course uh, great food from my Yemeni side actually I don't I didn't hear a lot of story I know that when they came to Israel they I know they came to the Mabara and I know that the Two of my uh, grandma's sister has died in the in the way in the plan I don't know and they don't talk about it and I believe because there's a sad story there and I hope one day I will I will heard it yes uh, well I heard a lot of stories almost every Saturday that we spent on our grandparents house in a Moshav Tarom uh, my grandmother took us and took all the grandsons and around her and with a big pile of uh, cut uh, vegetables and told us a lot of stories uh, about Yemen about her a small village called Medid about the life there about um, how they they played the kids and how she went to the to the to, to bring water water to the house and also we heard about the the travel that she did to come to Israel about the Aliyah they had to walk to By, by, by leg from Adid to Sana in order to, to come to Hashed to the passing uh, camp and they walk by foot she and her sisters and her grandfather and her parents and they all walk by foot from Adid to Sana it took them a couple of weeks I think I don't remember uh, the exact amount of time and when they arrived Hashed they had to wait there also and it was a small uh, pest camp I don't know if you know about it there was a big mess there and nobody took responsibility about the people who were waiting there and they thought they they will in the moment that they, they come they can uh, go to Israel but they had to stay there like uh, six months and meantime meanwhile um, the grandfather of my grandmother got very sick and they had to wait more time and they Because of the waiting and because the, of the low conditions in the camp he eventually died in Hashed when they arrived as well they came in the plane and they went down from the plane and then they took a, they, they took them to a small hill and told them this is your house this is where you're going to live and we now growing cucumbers and <laughs> my grandmother and our friends and everybody in her family they didn't know anything about agriculture and It was like an, an assumption that they know agriculture but it was so apart from them and so not relate to what they're doing they were uh, merchant merchandise and they were um, silversmiths but nobody worked in agriculture and was so overwhelmed them that they didn't know what to do with this information and then they said them guidedness but it was so uh, 
different from what they knew to do. Um, if I may, I have one little story about my uh, other grandparents from Tunisia. We also heard this story of Aliyah. It was kind of a different story. My grandmother actually came from a very wealthy house. They had a lot of oppression, pro- a lot of property and they left a really big house with a lot of property. She was like kind of a princess and she met my grandfather in, uh, in Nabil. It's like uh, the country. <laughs> It's a country near the sea for in a vacation and they were, were in love and they were uh, uh, in touch in Tunisia. They were sending letters in Tunisia and after that my grandfather decided to come to Israel and to join the army and she stayed in Tunisia. And they wrote letters and she promised him that she will wait for him and he will wait for her and she will wish she will iron his uniforms of the army and living in this like big love story and eventually when she uh, did Aliyah to Israel they arrived Kiryat Chaim uh, was a small neighborhood close to Haifa and they live in, until now there but she was also overwhelmed with with, uh, with the difference like uh, Lior said from the wealthy life she left in uh, Tunisia in the big house and uh, a lot of people and a lot of uh, food and and clothes and suddenly to came to come to Israel and to Kiryat Chaim alone with nobody um, the other members of her family went to to France and not uh, they're not live here so they were all alone just the two of them and it was really uh, difficult for them here so if I met to to add to Uh, my grandfather perspective about this camp Hashed camp he used to call it Geula uh, uh, death camp Hashed death camp because he lost uh, um, all his material there all his culture material culture and all his um, 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 identity there it started I can I cannot see this this camp the Hashed camp the Geula camp as a something that we can call a good start. As you mentioned now with the Hashed camp and also with the stories before of your grandparents when they arrived in Israel, um, was there, were there stories of Yemen, like he was telling of Morocco, where that was the good country, that was where things were good and happy? I don't like to see things as a good or bad, but from what I heard from my grandparents, they said, And I think it reflects the... they feeling to Yemen I think I think it it reflects uh, how they felt and how they felt connect to Yemen and what they left behind and they didn't need to actually tell us stories about how how much it was good in Yemen or how much the life was better than here but you can you could understand from the, from from their behavior they they the way that they express themselves when they speak about the Yemen and the time in Israel you can see how they change immediately they, they face how they face change and how they you see the smile or see the, the, the eyes just you know dreaming and and you can see that it's it reflects something that we can say good but immediately when they move the stories from here if they told you stories from Israel and from the Aliyah they, they can change they change their shape completely. Shani, you only mentioned stories from your Iranian side. Did you feel then maybe more connected to the Iranian side of your heritage because of that? Or did you feel equally connected to your Yemenite side? I, I really took from my grandma a lot, a lot of things, a lot of songs, a lot of uh, food and uh, culture from the Iranian side. But the Yemeni side, I grew up with, uh, I have two... 
home <laughs> because I'm a daughter of a divorced parent. So my father's house was very Yemenite, uh, but he ultra-Orthodox. This is how you say Haredim. Yeah. So it's not about the country, Teman. It's about the culture. So of course I have every Shabbat, Kubana and Jachnun, and we have a lot of Yemenite music, Yemenite Jewish music, but only the... The man music, not the woman music, not the the Arabic songs, only the Hebrew songs. So I really connected to my uh, Yemenite culture and my Yemenite side, but not from the old country, from Yemenite. In the community you grew up in, the, were most of the Jews uh, from a similar background? When I was a child, I believe that I was the only Yemenite girl in the school so they called me Shanuna Temanuna and after this I go to Tel Aviv University and I learn uh, classical music so the majority of the students was Ashkenazi but in just a few cases in the most of the time I feel special in a good way. My neighborhood when I grew up mostly people the origin of people was Mizrahi North, North Africa usually I went to a, a high school which set geographically from in the, in the middle of the city. So all the students that came from the south side of the city was Mizrahi and all the students that came from the north side of the city was Ashkenazi. The classroom was pretty much separated. So I think 100% of my uh, students that studied with me in my high school was, was Mizrahim. And the difference, I think, came when I joined the army. I met a lot of new and different communities and cultures. And Shani told about the nickname in the army. I went to the, I finished an officer course and I returned to my base. And I remember that my friend was all Ashkenazim. It didn't make sense for them to have a, a Mizrahi uh, officer. So don't, they told me, your name is not Lior because Lior is modern. And so let's call you Zion, Zion Benisti. So that's a more suitable name for you. And you're not actually an officer, you're actually a technical um, rank. And they did like half, half, of, half of a joke and half uh, with a sort of like a wink to it. But it's actually symbolized a lot of the attitude that people had that if you uh, achieve something but, but with your own bootstrap, it's only because you uh, were a part of a discriminator movement or you did it without your own merit. Only... Uh, like connection and uh, those sort of things. The classrooms were segregated in Natanya? De facto. I mean, not like intentionally, but that's what happened. I mean, all the classroom that had uh, the full matriculation and had all the exam that they can go to uh, university were all filled with, with the Ashkenazim uh, kids and all the classroom that study a profession. In my high school, I didn't finish with a matriculation uh, diploma. I had a professional certificate of being a, a printer, actually an assistant printer that work on a, like, a, like a, a big printer uh, machines. And we, we printed all the leaflets and all the newspapers in the, in the school. And that was our education. Of course, I didn't, I didn't choose that. We actually told all of you cannot do the diploma, the full uh, matriculations, and the only thing that it can help you to achieve is to get your a vocational training so you can go and have a, a career. And the career that they chose for us is uh, being a printer. Assistant, sorry. Yeah. 
Well, um, in, in my neighborhood, in Kiryat Ono, I remember that when I, when I was young, I felt like everyone around me are Yemenite. But when I got into school, I, I saw that it's not like that. And when I went to high school, it was like the all opposite from uh, everything I, I felt uh, and knew. And actually, you, you, you told us about the, the, the classes that were separated. And I remember that I, I, I looked a couple of years ago in my uh, uh, photo album in a, in a big uh, tri- uh, trip with the high school. And I saw that we actually had, I'm sorry to, <laughs> to say that, but the black classes, like they put all the, all the, the girls. We, I was in a high school for only girls. All the black girls, the Mizrahi girls in one class. And you can see the difference in the color of the girls from the class of number one, number two, and number three is all black, and number four is all black, and number six is all black. It was so apparent, yes. So I, I couldn't see it back then, but now when I'm aware of, that, of it, it just came out to me as like all of a sudden, wow, it's a black class and this is white class. Um, so related to what you said, And I remember when, uh, when I was in high school and we, we were in uh, Bnei Akiva, um, everyone around me wore Ashkenazi, almost everyone, but in Kiraton we had also a big community of Yemenite people. But, you know, the majority were uh, in, in the role <laughs> part was uh, Ashkenazi. And I remember one day that we were in a peula and after that we were sitting on a bench and a couple of uh, Ashkenazi kids uh, just uh, circle us and... Um, like dancing around us and called me half-baked Jachnun. That was my nickname because I'm half Yemenite. I don't know. So uh, this is my, uh, the narrative I grew up in. So the settlement that I, that I grew up in is the same school that my father grew up. Crazy thing about the teachers in this school is that the same teachers that were so racist and behaved so wrong to my father and to all the rest of the Yemenite that uh, learn in this school because this school were in the kibbutz in uh, kibbutz Hafez Chaim which is a religious kibbutz and immediately the, the children were separate to the children from Bnei Re'em, the Yemenite and the Ashkenazi from the kibbutz And of course, all the groups in school separate like this and even at class. And it continued in my time because in my time when I learned that, when I, uh, I was at the, the, those groups, I was in, the, in mathematics, I was in the third group and English at the third group. And I didn't notice that in those groups, it's only the Ethiopian and the Yemenite and maybe some of the Moroccan that came from around. And the, the children from the kibbutz were <laughs> on the first uh, group. And they create those, those groups inside the class. So when the class began, you knew that you need to go from with some of the kids out of the class to the group because you are a special one. And you cannot understand what the teacher passed all the knowledge from, from the class. So you need to learn something more easy to understand. The guy used to talk about your lead to, to learn and print. And the guy who was responsible on the big print machine in my school or same guy who was the manager of the school. He was old in my time, principal, yes. I heard a lot of stories uh, about these guys from my father, how much he beat my father, how much he showed on my father. And I 
I knew that I'm, I'm coming with just a few papers to his room because my, uh, my teacher sent me to copy. And I knew that this guy that's standing in front of me, this old guy, he was the guy that showed on my father and, and, and humiliated him. And he, he is the one and he's standing in front of me. How should I react? And I was so little. And today I can like, I can put it in a word, but back then I was so angry and, and confused. And, and how is it even possible? Like the bad people that still, that still exist and still teaching in school and still how, how the system didn't like did any, anything to, to change itself. And you still say that, uh, no, those days are past and there is no racism and, and we are new Israel. And, but I can see the faces. They are still here. They are still there. My experience is a little bit different because it was in the U.S. and it was all Ashkenazim, um, at least in the school that I went to. And I guess Shani is the only one who said that she didn't have like a split or, or a large group with her from her uh, heritage. And so what I want to ask is, did you, aside from these stories, what happened to you? How did you feel dealing with those situations? Did you want to be part of the Ashkenazim? Did you want to be part of the, the group that was getting their matriculation? Or was, was there something that you also did when you, when you were that age to try and fit in? When I was a kid, when I was a, uh, a teenager, even a, a young man, you might say uh, I drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, I was totally in that sense of the Ashkenazi are much better people than the Mizrahi, they're much, they're much more intelligent, they, ha they have a better culture, they have literature and music, and uh, well, maybe the food is not that good, but you know, you can win and all. And so that was my, my uh, sense. And when I went to, uh, when I studied in the university, I study, uh, also studied Jewish studies. And of course, all the thinkers and all the uh, Rabbanim and all the uh, books was written by European Jews, of course. And your culture doesn't have any books. Your culture doesn't have any knowledge. So it's ir irrelevant. And my sense was I should be thankful and just understand that I have a lot to learn from them and if I will play my cards right I can assimilate myself and be uh, be a part of that Israeli uh, success story and uh, it was a, a film that I carry carry uh, for a long time and it took me a few events and a few incidents and quite a few years to understand that all that was a big lie and and uh, it wasn't that my culture doesn't have any heritage and doesn't have any thinkers or books. And actually all of us, I think, and a lot of my friends are doing an, an action of rediscovering, of reclaiming, and maybe a little bit like an archaeologist. You have to uh, chip away the, the different layers to reach the, the reality, which is truth. I mean, it's not made up reality and we don't glorify the, the past. I mean, we have the culture, uh, rich enough culture to, that we can lay on and we can use it as a platform for us to, to grow and evolve. It took me uh, quite a few years and uh, quite a little bit of effort of dealing that with, discovering that with myself and uh, do, do a little bit of research and understanding and understanding the, the way that the, the Israeli society is construct it not it's not accidental it's a lot of it is based on 
racism and a lot of it based on erasing the the action the most common action is with uh, with my culture is racing you actually it's, it's in the raised culture and you have to rediscover it okay okay so okay so I have a beautiful story that I hope that I try to succeed to say it in English when I was uh, I think 10 years old I try to do audition from the school choir I go to the music teacher and I sing to her and of course I learned to sing from uh, my father from uh, Kiddush dinner from the Shabbat dinner the songs of the Jewish uh, Yemenite people and I didn't pass the audition because she told me that I'm too meselselet and we don't know how to translate it to, to English so I just like it's too much um, Uh, yeah, melismatic, exactly. So I didn't pass the audition and every, you know, holiday or stuff that the choir do stuff in the, in the school, I just heard it from the side and look at it. And a few years later, uh, like two years ago, I, sing, uh, I was singing in the, with the um, Natania Kibbutz Orchestra in the Halat Arbut. And I saw her with all the students from my school. I was singing opera, and I think this is the why the, the, this is why I chose to learn opera and not go to the Yemenite songs. And I'm very happy that in the Corona time, I took lessons with the Yemenite teacher, and this is my closure with uh, with the Yemenite music. I remember one story that can maybe um Uh, I remember the, when I was in sixth grade in the school we had some tutors from tutors from sixth grade to the first graders and they they had to choose students from the class to go to be a tutors to the kids from first grade and they pick up only the Ashkenazi rich kids in the class and I remember that I got so angry I, I don't know where it came from but I got so angry because I knew that I'm a smart kid sorry <laughs> I was a smart kid but I I live in the wrong neighborhood and I'm Mizrahi, I'm Yemenite. It's not fair. It's really not fair. And I, I feel this angry right now. And I remember that I went to the principal office without any shame. And I told him, it's not fair. Why are you thanking them and not me? I'm, I can do it. I can do it exactly like them. And I, I, I think he was very surprised with my behavior because I was so quiet and a nice kid. And I was so angry that uh, finally they, they took me. To be a tutor but it was you know it's like one story to 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 see the it's so obvious that we take we take the Ashkenazi and rich kids to to be tutors because they should do it and the others even though they are smart and they have the skills they can do it because they live in the wrong neighborhood or the wrong color of our face I remember I heard about a couple of singers from uh, the USS the, the US sorry Afro-American singers that they all live in the same neighborhood and And they all got very successful in their profession because they all worked hard to do it, to, to make it to make it work they they said that we had to work hard we, we couldn't be just sitting on on, a, on the side and wait something to happen to us it never will happen to us we need to work hard I have another one story that when I was in the army we, we were a group of uh, people got in um, very heterogenic and we had a Saturday in uh, some nice place in Harmeron and And with our families and at the end of Shabbat they asked my father to do Havdalah he started to do the Yemenite Havdalah and suddenly he stopped he got panicked and he did the Ashkenazi Havdalah 
And at that time, I think even he didn't realize that something is weird or not natural, but it, it seemed very strange to me. But, you know, I moved on. But just in the last few years, I, I got remembered in all those stories and said, it's so distorted. It's, it's not supposed to be like that. Why? why? I don't know why, why it happened to him, if he felt ashamed. It only shows how much is underneath. And uh, Lior said it was very uh, uh, on purpose. All this uh, education that we got, it, it, which it was only Ashkenazi education. We got only Ashkenazi sidurs in the school. Uh, we learned only Ashkenazi prayers, only Ashkenazi uh, piyutim and songs of Shabbat when we, we did Shabbat in school. So it wasn't a mistake. It was, I guess, also uh, on purpose, like uh, they said before. So this, these are my stories. And only in the, last, in the last few years, I just reclaiming my identity, going back, going to see, because I feel that something was broken between the first generation of the Aliyah to our generation in the middle, this middle that they had to be here and to, to fit in and to be like part of the society. And we are now, and we, we, are, we, we, we are feeling that it's strange and we need to bring this voice up again. So we are, we are doing the reclama rec reclaiming of this uh, identity. This, this is what I feel. We need to, to cover up, up for our second generation. So we've talked about uh, stories from the old country. We've talked about our uh, life experiences. Uh, now I want to talk about what, uh, from all of that experience, uh, what kind of choices you made based on that information in your life. Leo, let's start with you. I think that uh, a lot of my uh, life choices in the places that I've been or try to create are very relevant to the way I raised and very relevant to the way I uh, grew up. For, first of all, the, the way I choose a life of, uh, of social activism, it wasn't accidental. I mean, it, it was deliberate because I wanted to create a movement between myself of, of correcting, of doing things right that other kids won't had the same experience that I had. Uh, I grew up in a very poor environment, a very um, lean environment in resource and, and all you can think of. And my first activities was in, in those kind of NGOs and those kind of uh, non-profit, a lot of um, welfare activities and a lot of working with, uh, with fighting uh, the elements of poverty. And uh, when I grew up, I also... I continued with my journey in, in the social activist field and I started different organizations and uh, different nonprofits dealing with environment and dealing with education and uh, with um, fighting poverty. Of course, it's relevant to the environment that I come from, but I think directly I have two uh, initiatives that I want to talk about that are very related to the conversation that we had. Uh, the first one, I understood that the way that, that I, our parents or grandfathers and grandmothers was, was treated was wrong, was immoral and wrong. And I saw it for, in first, uh, first hindsight, and I, I saw it with my own eyes, it, the way that the Israeli society does it again, does it with the Ethiopian community. The same exact uh, stereotype, the same exact racism. And I told myself, you can allow as a society, can allow them, uh, ourselves to do that again. So 
In my little corner, I started an organization called the Canfe Yona. It's named after Yona Bugale, which was a very famous uh, activist in the Ethiopian uh, jury and uh, did a lot to uh, increase the aliyah from Ethiopia. And basically, we took, we, we are taking, we're still uh, existing, groups of young Ethiopian. We give them scholarship and they go back to the family, document and record the story of the of the journey from from Ethiopia through Sudan to Israel and we do that every student uh, that, that get a scholarship and does that does at least three ne- members of his own uh, family it could be a middle family it could be a father or mother or an uncle it could be a, like a neighbor or even uh, somebody that doesn't know but the most powerful and most intense when you do it with somebody that you know and somebody that is very close to you every year we do a ceremony that we present the the documentation we present the, the story and we do a, a big uh, very emotional uh, event it's um, incredible that you see older people standing in front of the portrait we do a, a very big uh, portrait and they cry because they saw somebody heard the story somebody is put the story on paper and and it's there for the for the next generation of his own family and the entity shaping that happens with the student during the, during the, the process is is very powerful and very very intense and they shape their identity as is also Ethiopian but also is Jewish and also is Israeli so that's one project and the other one is one one time I went to I went to visit my mother and uh, there was a lot of nephews a lot of grands grand kids of uh, my grandma and I heard my mother speak with the uh, grandsons with a lot of Moroccan terms of endearment and uh, all those uh, words that all of us knows from the uh, Israeli uh, slang. And uh, I thought to myself that my nephews doesn't know the meaning of the words. So I wrote a children book that is trying to create a uh, like a bridge between the generation of the grandfathers and grandmothers to the generation of the grandkids. And it's called Why, why Safta, Why Grandmas Call Me Kapara, and teach them the, the meanings of each and every word. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of a spoiler. The, the meaning is love. She loves you. <laughs> I mean, that's the meaning. The kids go through a little bit of an adventure to, to discover that. Uh, when I wrote the book, I approached all the public housing of a children's book in Israel, and all of them said no, obviously. And uh, so I did uh, like a Kickstarter event uh, for uh, crowdfunding and the book w- went out and went to the stores and we printed two editions and uh, it was uh, not a huge but a pretty big success. Okay, this, the way that the story from my uh, grandparents and my parents influenced on me, the fact that I, I become a silversmith because I saw the, the importance to keep the tradition of the, the Yemenite Jewish people because I saw how, uh, how much effort uh, invest to make us, the Israeli society, to forget our tradition, Jewish tradition. I mean the Jewish tradition that didn't came from Europe, okay? And I saw that how many from my culture, from my tradition, from my grandparents' tradition are going lost. 
and especially the language, the materialistic culture. And when I start to, to research the tradition, it leads me to, to be passionate to the language of the jewelry. And because the jewelry in the, the traditional Yemenite Jewish jewelry has a language, and when you learn the secret esoteric symbols, then the whole world reveal in front of you. And then you find yourself in a major conflict in the Judaism, if we can say Judaism. And then you, I, I find myself like I need to, 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 to choose a side. Like if I want to be involved in the Israeli society, I need to, to leave behind some of my tradition, some of my grandfather and grandmother tradition and, and to, to adapt myself to the, to the new Israeli narrative. And I choose not. <laughs> it's, it reveals a whole uh, world that uh, made me choose that which side I am. And in this, in this uh, moment, I realized that I need to, or I want to, to continue this tradition, but I need to know this tradition first. So I bought a lot of books <laughs> about uh, the uh, research book about the, the tradition and to understand because my family didn't pass the tradition correctly because they suffer from some philosophy that said that we need to erase your tradition to create a new Jewish, a new Israeli um, people. So, so it's, it influenced me a lot. My movement in this world uh, to create, to, to preserve the tradition and I think it's really important for me and for other, for the and for the next generation to uh, learn and not to be ashamed to to touch and to learn and and to carry on the tradition uh, that your parents, your grandparents brought from from the uh, country. So I have two follow-up questions. Uh, the first one is if you could elaborate a little bit about the silversmith um, as a career and as uh, its connection to. Yemenite Jewry. And the second question is, do you see an option where you don't have to choose sides, where your tradition is part of the uh, larger Israeli narrative? So the Jewish Yemenite uh, narrative about uh, the, the silversmith, uh, the silversmithing is, is, uh, is that it came from since time of uh, King Solomon, Queen Shiva. But uh, research said that it uh, began in the, in the first century. The, the jewelry carried a lot of uh, uh, knowledge. All the, the arts, symbols carry a lot of knowledge, especially in Yemen. You can see it on, on, on buildings, on structure, you can see it in, on, on, on the clothes. But specifically, the jewelry was influenced by every culture that uh, conquered Yemen. Uh, if it's like the, the Sasanic per, uh, um, culture, or uh, the Byzantine, or even uh, after this, the Muslim. So you can see the influence on the jewelry. And when you understand and learn the, the, the symbols and the language, you, you understand how you can separate the parts of the jewelry to each culture that influence on the jewelry. And then you can identify the Jewish the Jewish idea from the from in the jewelry, and then uh, you can understand what does it mean, how it's inflect on on Jewish life and Jewish uh, people on in this same community. And it's a Jewish thing, the jewelry and all the materialistic culture, because it carry a Jewish symbols and the philosophy of of uh, uh, the establishing of Israel, or to demolish the race 
all those symbols to create a new Jewish. It's hard for me to see how we can connect between those sides, between the sides of the Judaism that believes in, in, the, in all the materialistic culture that carry uh, more than the idea of the, of the, um, of the God without, uh, that has no... Um, and it's hard for me to say how the, the uh, uh, ideology of how I preserve the culture and the tradition of Jewish Yemenite people, how it combined with, uh, with the philosophy of the Ashkenazi about how, how they catch the, the principle of, of uh, God, of the abstract. And because we have a lot of material, we, the Yemenite Jewish, the Arab Jewish, we have a lot, of, we came with a lot of materialistic. And, and when we are, put ourselves far from those material, from those tradition, we see it in a different way. And then we can uh, lost this tradition because we are, it's far from us and we don't understand it. And the way we understand it, it's through the eyes of the Ashkenazi here. I try to find out a subject to my thesis and I decided to look about uh, at the Yemenite music it was like okay I have the Yemenite music the Yemenite heritage and I wanted to to research it and it was only the beginning of a journey that I that I uh, went into because I came to this uh, thesis with with an agenda um, because I researched the influence of Yemenite music Jewish Yemenite music uh, on European composers. So I came with agenda that the European composers took the Yemenite music and destroyed it and they use it uh, and they like try to um, elaborate it and did it condescending. And the end of the, at the end of the journey, I came out in two ways. First, I came to conclusion that it was a difficult uh, situation here in Israel with all the, all the composers, I, I I'm speaking especially about this case, the composers from Europe and the immigrants uh, from Yemen, they were all immigrants, they were all came with their difficulties. So th this is one, wasn't ideal uh, uh, circumstances to, to work with each other. The composers did what, what they knew to do, they knew only the European way, so this, this is what they did with the Yemenite music. The other conclusion that I uh, found out that it's that I have such a rich uh, culture, which I thought I knew something about it, but I don't know anything. Um, I knew the songs from my house, from my grandparents' house. I knew about the food. Everybody knows about the food. I knew about a little bit about the, the jewelry, but it was only the peak of the culture. The other said before, um, something was broken in the uh, passing this tradition. Um, from all the reasons that we said before and I felt like I need to research more and more and more and to take out more layers of this of this culture so I, I read my thesis became from to be only 50 page 50 pages to 150 pages because I was so interested and I, I started to in investigating about the Aliyah and about the camps and about the, the third waves of Aliyah of Yemen like everything that was related to Yemen I just put inside my thesis and eventually the culture I found out that the songs that the, that already got into into the Israeli canon of music was actually erased from from other side of the Arabic Yemenite they like they took only the parts of the Hebrew lyrics they when they 
took uh, piyutim from the diwan. So it's only the, first of all, it's only the, the men's uh, musical tradition. But even when they took it, they took only the parts in Hebrew and not in Arabic, Yemenite, which is also kind of, you know, erasing the identity of the Arabs. And we only speak Hebrew. This was a bit surprise uh, for me. Also about the, the women's song, uh, which is a, a really um, a tradition that it's not here. A tradition that passed away, especially because when the, the place that this tradition uh, came out and was um, in groups of women when they worked together and they uh, when they sat together after a, a woman a woman uh, gave birth or even after when people died they were all in groups and these um, costumes disappeared when they came to Israel and when they did the Aliyah they had uh, to go and to um, to do laundry together they were separated and so this tradition that we, which what which was only uh, by mouth um, stopped and disappeared and uh, only the grandmothers if they remember remember something of that so uh, my little project was to take some of these songs and to put them in a, a more large uh, landscape and uh, I'm working on it now I, I made an album with those songs first to bring uh, this tradition into the center of stage and second to to move it on to be to to let it be recorded and documented because it's almost gone this is my my little uh, place that i'm working on it in the way that i educate my own kids in order that we 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 are accepting everyone we cannot joke about anybody anyone's uh color of um or anyone's um uh, costumes and everything we are accepting everyone and it, this is one thing that I I'm so sensitive about it uh, and I'm so I, I feel like it's from my own uh, experience that that I'm so sensitive about it and when I see uh, even one little thing that, that my kid is going to do and in treatment of other kids so I am <laughs> jumping out and and trying to to bring him the the larger uh, landscape um, because of my own experience. So this is one way in the way that I do it in my own house, educating my own kids, uh, trying to. So thank you everyone for uh, joining us and being with us. Hopefully you've learned something about reclaiming identities and about Israeli social life and history. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.